<laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. I'm Ron Zazadinsky. I'm Steve Martin. I'm John Walters. Uh, that's, uh, we're having John on the second time in a row, which is a first for us. Which it's is a first for me. It's for, well, you're yeah. part of us now. Yeah, aw, oh, oh, <laughs> Steve. How, how, I mean, that's, what better start into the I podcast? I know, <laughs> warm fuzzies. Oh, yes. We're very excited to have John back with us. Thank you. For further discussion. And I would like to say that if anybody happened to notice or go to our website in the past, I don't know, three or four days, I'm sorry because it was hacked. I don't know if I don't think I told you this. No. I went last night to post the most recent episode, extremely late. Apologies to everyone. And some idiot had hacked the dumb web. I think oh, it's because I, I had about five sites on my server hacked exactly the same way. It was mm-hmm. all WordPress um, vulnerabilities in some way. I had not upgraded. There was some security thing. And so some there's some picture of some emo kid with like dark eye, eye, mm-hmm. eye makeup and stuff saying you've been hacked by this person who gives all these email addresses and phone numbers to call. I'm like, I'm not calling you. <laughs> Script Kitty was here. Exactly. So I felt pretty stupid for one, but because I should know better. But that's an interesting comment because I saw that one of the UX designers or web designers that I follow on Twitter tweeted that basically all the WordPress sites that he maintains have been hacked. Mm. So I don't know if they have like a crawler going that, Checks for outdated. Well, it's kind of the same problem that Windows has had forever. Oh, the yeah. more people that use it, the more of a target it is. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> I mean, what is it? We we mentioned last a few episodes ago, like fifteen percent of the web is on WordPress. It's. Uh, I think I had said ten percent. I thought I had okay. heard from Matt Mullenweg on an interview. I yeah. heard, and actually, I part of my uh, one of my news items today was some WordPress stats, and one of them is that fourteen percent of the web now, theoretically, is powered by WordPress. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I yeah, don't feel a, horrible, but... It's a big target. So was it easy to restore the site? Or? It actually was. The guy had, I mean, they could have done a lot more. Well, I mean, I assume they could have, have done a lot more. They could have made it worse. But basically what they did is changed the index.php and the header.php. And that's it? To their stuff. Uh-huh. And that's all they changed. Oh, okay. Well, they also changed the username of the admin and the Ooh. password to the ad of the admin. And um, so I need to change, I, I had to do the email my password reset, which they could have locked out. So I guess right. thanks <laughs> for not being worse than you were, whoever you are. But um, I did learn the valuable lesson that, I don't know if anybody would find this interesting, that if you have a child theme within WordPress, it's a lot easier to get back from a hack like that, hmm. this specific one anyway. Because on my Clever Cube site, which was also hacked, I have... Um, it's running on thematic mm-hmm. and I have a child theme with all the styles and everything that kind of laying on top of that. And I think what a lot, what this has happened to me in, in different ways on other websites weren't running WordPress. What, it, what this kind of script does, it seems to go through and it's really easy to find the path to your theme folder mm-hmm. because it's in all the, 
URLs for the, 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 the image sources and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like what they do is they find that and then they the bot looks in that folder for these three files, right, change these files and move on. Yeah. Right. Because index and the header are always the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so what uh, my child theme just had um, CSS and images, and I think I had the header in there because I had done some custom stuff in it. And I didn't really, I don't know enough PHP to know how to do the custom hooks and whatever you can do. And so all I had to do was get the header from the, the, um, actually just delete the file really is all I did because oh, okay. I didn't, I couldn't remember what I had changed <laughs> and apparently it wasn't that, that big of a deal because I just, um, deleted that file from my child theme, which caused WordPress then to go back and look at the parent theme thematic and pulled from there. And that was the only thing I had to do. Wow. So for, for the Einstein and sockmonkey.com site, I had to do a few more tweaks and got to bed at one, but mm. you know. Do you know which, which forward. security hole they exploited to get into the site? So I have not ever files. had a chance to look. We need. To, I know. I'll ask. Nick Armstrong has had this happen to several sites that he administers. Mm-hmm. And I, have, I know he's over, checked into over it. Over the years, we've had I think maybe three or four sites hacked all together, um, and but they've been all different platforms. We had one was WordPress, but we had another that was a static mm-hmm. HTML. We had another one that was another CMS. Like, Forget which one off the top of my head, um, and every time on ours, when we went back to the server logs and looked at how it all happened, it was um, somehow people had sniffed the FTP username and password in the clear, oh, okay. and then a bot mm-hmm. used that really to get in and modify files. Yeah, huh? Yeah, because you actually see the FTP login times directly. Yeah, really. I should look in the logs to see mm-hmm. just out of curiosity. It's okay. kind of ironic that our friends from the Digital Gunslingers who are in Fort Collins will be hosting a WordPress security. Exactly. <laughs> uh, like WordPress is more meetup. stable and more secure. So, well, I, I, yeah, I should share with Nick about that because maybe my, maybe we should go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got a point there. <laughs> yeah, but um, my my clever cube site has been hacked before, not to that extent. All the guys did was they threw in some. Essentially, links to porn sites in mm-hmm. one of, in one of the sidebars, hmm. and I didn't see it for months. I don't know how long <laughs> it was there, because I, you know, I, I write the blog post and I stick it up there, and, and right. you know, a lot of people don't scroll to the bottom and look at the right hand side in these little tiny, tiny, tiny words. Wow. But I saw it on there. I'm like, what? <laughs> Could, couldn't you see the see any? Uh, Interesting things pop up in, in the searches in your web stats, maybe. <laughs> to your page because Actually, of the link. Why am I ranking number one for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like Nick Armstrong, who, who shows up for, was it Skittles porn? I think that was the. Oh, Skittles right. porn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. He's like number one for Skittles porn. Yeah. Right. Or it's like the number one source of traffic to his website or something. <laughs> If it was a number one source for traffic, I would be sad. <laughs> Only kidding, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so we got that handled, and we're back on track. And but that just it, just a good lesson to keep updating because I know that the WordPress guys do a really good job of updating for security flaws. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, I hadn't logged into my my Clever Cube site for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now it says, oh, you need the new version. And sometimes I'm like, nah, don't want to deal with it. Or I'm not sure if my plugins are going to work. But now I'm like, just do it. Yeah, it's gotten a lot better, I think. You know, the 
You can still, of course, have plugins that are not compatible when you do the security upgrades. But sure. uh, we're finding it's happening less frequently. We're probably also picking plugins to use that are more stable or more compatible or, you know, yeah. upgraded more regularly as well. But anyway, I'm I glad you got it fixed. That's a bummer that that happened. Yeah. Thanks for fixing it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I, I find it interesting that now with, with a platform that is so popular like WordPress, why don't they build in system level caching system? Because I, whenever I, I see uh, someone with a very high traffic site like John Gruber's Daring Fireball mm -hmm. linked to a website that is powered by WordPress, I mean, he's he's already making fun of these people because, oh, yet another WordPress site that can't handle the yeah, traffic. Fireballed. <laughs> exactly, it's fireball. I think he he even had a like a caching website built up. Yeah, he does. He, <laughs> his yeah. own caching. Site. <laughs> I mean, just think about people it. he links to. And I would like to see one of these these better caching plugins just become sort of an integral part of the installation of WordPress. I think mm -hmm. that would help a lot. It's kind of stuff like that. Kind of goes against the, what WordPress the way that they act. I guess the way they mm -hmm. develop stuff. And I don't know. I'm sure that this stuff's public if you want to get into it, but. I don't know what what's in their you know their roadmap or their yeah. guidelines. Like we we let this area of the world become a plugin because I know there's multiple plugins mm -hmm. for caching, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or this and this part of WordPress needs to be core, and this doesn't. You know, mm -hmm. kind of it's kind of like you ask the same questions with Apple because there's a whole kinds of all kinds of stuff that not in the iOS, for example. And then someone makes a cool app, and then mm -hmm. Apple's like, I think we'll make that part of the OS. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so I don't know. Backups are key. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, while we're on the topic of WordPress, let me just cover the item I, the rest of my item, because that'll be. No, you have to go in order. I have to Rob. go in order? No, it's a, go ahead. <laughs> so it's it's a, a nice other... segue. The other uh, angle to this stat, so I, we had mentioned that WordPress is reported to power 14% of the world's websites. Um, and as of um, a few days ago, WordPress is now powering over 50 million websites, blogs, portfolios, stores, mm -hmm. and as Matt says, of course, cat websites. Cat websites. <laughs> nice. So there's a, a link to um, the blog post on Matt Mullenweg's um, personal blog. And Matt, if you're not familiar, Matt Mullenweg is the founder of Automatic, which is the maintainer, I guess, of WordPress um, and the the figurehead for WordPress. Yeah. Yep. So that's off of his blog. And then he had a link. Uh, they have a link to their stats page. And then uh, I also have a link to that stat of where the 14% of the world's websites, where I, where I found that stat. Now, I'm really curious how they measure that. That's um, a good question. Yeah, I don't have any idea how they would measure. And and by the way, the fifty million does cover WordPress.com hosted blogs, mm -hmm. as well as self-installed. As well as yes, WordPress installations, hmm. um, like ours would be. Right. Um, and it's about fifty-fifty. Do they have, a, do they have a way of knowing how many people? Well, I know they they can tell how many people have downloaded it. I guess. Yeah, they say installations, so I don't know. Because I don't, I'm not aware that WordPress pings back to the the mothership and says maybe it does. I'm online. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe they could do that indirectly via the Acousmid installations. No. I mean, that's... Like Not the, everybody does that. Those, sorry? Not everybody uses that. Yeah, but maybe hey, as I mean, a rule of thumb. Yeah, and then up at X percent to make it sound better. 
<laughs> it is a, a heck of a big number. So it's I mean, well, either way, fifty million—that's massive. It is. I mean, consider Facebook has seven hundred and fifty million users, and uh-huh. we're talking about fifty million websites. Mm-hmm. That is m- massive because mm-hmm. lots of people go visit each of those websites. Probably, you know, it's, well, for some of them, probably nobody visits. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think I have. I personally have like three or four WordPress.com sites that I forgot the URLs to. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they're in those stats. Well, what's the word for that? Digital orphan, I guess. <laughs> orphan websites. That'd be a lot of that. I, I, I think I have the three of those. A couple blog spots and two Tumblr blogs that I. It's like you set them up because I have an idea, right? Exactly. Or just to test it out. Yeah, I think I've got free. one or two WordPress.com blogs out there somewhere. Yeah. Doesn't that prove this? kind of nugget of wisdom that the vast majority of web blogs kind of dies down after three months or so. Was that like a, an average figure or so? I haven't heard that. that. That people start blogging and after just a couple of months, they basically stop because they lose motivation or maybe run out of ideas. Well, it's like anything in yeah, life, you know, and everybody almost. tries to lose weight after the first of January <laughs> and then by April, you know, the gym is empty again. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New Year's resolutions, write more blog posts. Exactly. Lasts yeah. just about as long. Yeah. That, that'd be funny if you could kind of, if you could figure out a way to go through and just pull a bunch of just stats from blogs to see how many, Blog posts are within the first two months of the year <laughs> versus uh, right, the rest of the year. year. That would be interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, bottom line on that, though, I, I, I would say is that WordPress is doing well and uh, it's a great content management system. I think it's wonderful, personally. Yeah. Yeah. Hacks aside. Hacks aside. <laughs> we recovered. I'm not going to blame WordPress. So, John, I think you have the next item. I do. Um, Another contender has entered the ring to fight the iPad. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, the funny thing is, if you have a a perceived leader in any market, uh, basically any new contender is kind of announced like, "Is this the new enter uh, whatever killer?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's, oh, I'm so tired of that. I'm I can't explain how tired. There's only of room for one thing exactly. in each class. <laughs> and, I, I remember discussing this with a very dear friend of mine. Ralph, I'm sorry that I mentioned this, but it's, oh my gosh. We were talking about Android versus iOS. Mm-hmm. And my buddy Ralph is, is a really tech-savvy guy. And he said, well, I think the smartphone operating system wars are over and Android has won. Like, well, you know, <laughs> Tell that to Apple. <laughs> I mean, if, I, you know, Apple is extremely profitable with their, with their products. I don't think they really care that much about market share but the key thing is just like you said steve there is just room for one i mean in every market just like in cars there's just that one manufacturer or is there so i you know i i love it when there is an actual market because that actually puts some pressure on the companies to innovate it's true which is wonderful so that part I have, uh, I'll move these ahead because mm-hmm. this is a good connection there. So there's some stats off of um, blog post here. I have a link to about Apple stats mm-hmm. and uh, iPad traffic. So if you look at tablet traffic, so not number of iPads sold or, or rather tablets sold, but just traffic. The iPad represents 89% of tablet traffic wow. across all markets and that's across all countries. And in the U.S., the figure is 97%. <laughs> 
So I would say um, the HP touchpad has a big uphill battle in front of them. Absolutely. but And, and that is exactly the new contender, which was uh, released uh, last month and has gone on sale on July 1st. And it's the Hewlett Packard touchpad. And as uh, you guys out there might remember, is that HP actually bought Palm. Right. Right. And yes. as part of the process, they got the WebOS. Right. Which so this is like the big Palm Pre. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, according to Jason Snow from Macworld magazine, it's the, uh, f- at least from the physical uh, characteristics, uh, he said it's the most iPad-like tablet he's seen, at least from the physical outline, like yeah. in terms of size. So it's a 10-inch diagonal <clears throat> screen. Hmm. And it comes in 16 and 32 gig uh, varieties. And the, even the price is identical. So there's $500 hmm. for the 16 gig and 600 for the 32 gig. Interesting. And um, what I find interesting is when I look at all the mobile operating systems that are out there, I think in terms of, of aesthetics that the WebOS is, is really well implemented. Um, maybe not in a technical sense because um, in his pretty extensive uh, review of the, of the touchpad, Jason Snell comes up with a couple of bugs and a couple of instabilities, and sometimes the device is kind of sluggish. So there's a bit of room for improving the actual coding that runs the thing. But if you look at the graphics and some of the interaction design, it's pretty cool. So, for example, they have this this really neat idea called touch-to-share. If you have a, a WebOS-powered mobile phone and the touchpad, you just lay the uh, the mobile phone onto the touchpad no and tap a button and it'll transfer a web page that you're viewing on the tablet to the mobile what phone. What does the contacts have anything to do with anything? I think it's just like a near-field thing that it automatically pairs via Bluetooth with a device. Hmm. I'm not sure how they do that technically, hmm. but um, and in fact, uh, Snell said that it's not working as reliably as it should. But I mean, the, I, I like it even if it's not working right. I, I love it that they come up with some well, it's an interesting, outrageous new ideas. That's a really neat interaction if they can get that to be reliable. Because like just just right now, um, before we started the podcast, we we're looking at our script, just the sequence of discussion topics, mm-hmm. and I needed that URL from you, mm-hmm. and you had to email it to me. You know, so I right. had to go around the moon three times before I got it. When we're sitting right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I was thinking, actually, as we were doing this, like there should be an easier way to do this. So. Absolutely. Well, I'm not really sure if it requires the Of course, if devices. you actually use Google services, you could have just Google chatted it. <laughs> oh, well, I think we'll come to that in a minute because we have another news item that addresses exactly that problem. <laughs> um, okay, thanks for the swift kick. I've got to give you a little bit of hassle about something yeah. here. Yeah. Every now and then. Um, the one thing I don't know about the, the details of this this implementation is I'm not sure if you have to be in the same user account or something or if you can actually share data that way if you have hmm. uh, differently, um, if you have two devices that are run from a different account. I'm mm-hmm. not sure about that yet. Um, another thing that ties into this is that they have cordless charging. They have something called the touchstone and you just place the device on it mm-hmm. and it, it's charged inductively. And that's a standard feature Absolutely, it's built right in. And um, apparently there are applications that can display things. I've forgotten the the exact name for that feature. So if you have something like a calendar application or a clock or a a video slideshow, as soon as you place a device on that touchstone charging dock, whatever you want to call it, um, you can access those applications. And as soon as you take it away, the applications stop. 
And so, for example, if you brought your device to your office and you put it down in the touchstone, it might start playing a slideshow of your family pictures. Oh, okay. So you can kind of customize oh, it to, okay. exactly. to do some behavior when you're charging. I think it might be a little bit like the, the uh, active tiles on Windows 7, that it's not just the display of some, some static icon or something, but it's actually showing Doing data something. and visualizing stuff. Um, and one thing... So, so the iPad yeah. has a similar feature, has a slideshow feature. Yeah. Do, you, do you use that at all, Steve? Or? Once in a while at home. Yeah. yeah like Because it's a neat idea. It's a little icon. So when mm -hmm. it's locked, you can just tap this icon right. and it will just start playing a slideshow instead of being blank, you know. Um, but I haven't, I haven't really used that feature. Well, I would expect that the, the feature in, in the touchpad is similar to that, but that it's open to developers and that it's not limited to the, just the, the slideshow like Apple does. On the right, iPad. right, right. You can customize it a lot more than just mm -hmm. the one option Apple gives you. Well, one thing that I noticed that I really like about the WebOS is the way it change applications because on the iPhone, it's it, if, you, if you've never seen it before, you hardly will ever find the way to switch applications on the iPhone. And... That's true. What you do on the touchpad, you swipe your finger from uh, um, outside the touchscreen into the touchscreen, mm -hmm. and it shows all the running applications like cards, almost like a like a set of playing cards that you hold in your hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, if, if you want to quit an application, you kind of just flick it to the top edge of the screen, and that quits the like application and moves it right. from the set. And I find that much more elegant and much more uh, discoverable than how it's done on the, the iOS devices. So I'd say the key thing is, even though they may not be as stable as, as the iPad yet, and even though they probably are nowhere near what the iPad 2 is featuring right now, it is something that might appeal to some customers for whatever reason. It's just something that will keep Apple on their toes to, to keep innovating. Yeah, I mean, it definitely will appeal to some people. I, I'm, I'm really, in, I have not honestly had a chance to really look at any of the a bunch of the I was just watch kind of watching an overview video from mm -hmm. HP about some of the UI stuff, and I've heard how it's pretty slick, and it is. It looks pretty nice. I like the kind of scan through your open apps, kind mm -hmm. of let you actually see the screen and just instead right. of just the icon, so you can kind of get an idea. It's almost like a mobile version of Expose. <laughs> I think I have not played with it yet, but uh, you know the um, the web card, the card concept mm -hmm. um, that Palm OS, <clears throat> sorry, Web OS. Uh, Pioneered. I mean, I think it's one of the few different interactions right on a mobile device. Yeah. yeah otherwise, they're all. I mean, Android and Apple are not that different. Mm -hmm. I think in the interaction side of it. So, um, I was glad to see Palm not disappear. I was good to see that. Um, happy to see that. Right. HP picked it up and, and is going to do something with it. Of course, their track record isn't so good on those kind mm -hmm. of acquisitions, right? I mean, they picked up Compaq and had the whole, <laughs> uh, you know, Compaq uh, iPack. Oh, I had series. one of those, <laughs> yeah, and that that didn't didn't work out so well. And yeah, um, and the whole compact computer side of things too. They really kind of dropped the ball on that. So this is unique enough. I'm hoping that they, uh, I hope they really can do something with it and make it a contender. That's that's what I would like to see. I mean, it's and they're pretty ambitious too because what I read is that they even want to bring WebOS to PCs, printers, and other devices. And you think, well, what would you do in a printer? Maybe like a standalone printer, and you insert a memory card and the interface is mm. WebOS powered or something like that. Mm. So I find that very interesting just to see if that would ever become something like a like a competitor to a Windows installation on a standard PC. 
Well, that's an interesting trend too, just that the operating systems are becoming compact enough and mm-hmm. you know, chipsets are becoming cheap enough that you can put an operating system in lots of devices, right? And the Apple TV runs iOS. Right. right. Um, why? You don't need that much power, but it allows interoperability and interaction in future. Well, and the, the big thing that I have heard about the web OS is that HP is building it into all of their com- like desktops from now on. Interesting. So if you have, yeah, I saw a, it was a presentation from HP kind of demoing this idea. I don't know how close they are to reality with it, um, but the idea is that if you have something on your, uh, what's it, what, touchpad? Touchpad. Touchpad. Yeah. And you, you've, you're dealing with that document or whatever, and you shut it off, then you and you turn on your computer, it should be in the same state automatically. Ooh, it's kind of like auto syncing to that would be because cool. the the desktop is supposed to have WebOS in it. I see, so it can be in sync in yeah, some fashion and on top of Windows. So it's not like a mm. separate OS completely. Oh, okay, but it's like kind of an mm. emulator, I would assume. Like Windows 95 on DOS. <laughs> well, maybe not. But you know, it's I find it very interesting how the some of the interaction patterns moved from desktop OSs to portable devices, mm-hmm. and now how some of the innovation going from back, the portable devices migrating goes back. back. I mean, well, like the Apple Trackpad's a good example, exactly. right? That you can do gestures on the trackpad and you know op- rotate images on lap- the laptop on a MacBook Pro and that mm. kind of thing. And it's, the new version of uh, OS ten yeah, is going to have a lot of stuff that look that looks like uh, iOS. Mm-hmm. And even so. with with the Windows 8 demonstrations that they did, or the the demo videos, where you see that uh, you can't interact with a desktop PC uh, in a way that you interact with a Windows 7 phone, with the tiles and everything, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how much of that is feasible in terms of interactions. I mean, the one of the standard complaints, of course, is if you have a touch device, it works amazingly well if it's kind of in a table orientation, so it's right. lying down flat, mm-hmm. but. If you think about using a touchscreen that is mounted vertically, that's I mean, after 15 or 20 minutes, your shoulders right. will just start hurting. I'm not working at a kiosk yeah. but, setting uh-huh. where you're going to use it for a minute or two. But yeah, for all day, like you know, I don't know how much sense it makes to have a laptop screen be touch sensitive if it's in the same orientation that we're used to using laptop screens. I I I've thought the same thing. I've thought exactly both what both of you guys have said, mm-hmm. but I still am waiting for probably Apple to eventually. Start in putting touchscreens into all of their mm-hmm. uh, laptops. This is why. Not that it's going to be the primary method of, of interaction, mm-hmm. but they're training people so much to touch all these screens, mm-hmm. and I have done mm-hmm. it myself. I have actually <laughs> reached out and, and like to tried to move something on my screen. I'm like, ah, <laughs> idiot. Um, but I, I could see that when that technology gets cheap enough, mm-hmm. I think it's probably the, the money mm-hmm. thing is the deal right now, when it gets cheap enough, they can put that in on the screen. So if you feel like it, you can drag something across. Oh, we, oh, we might or, see an evolution uh, of devices too. I mean, you know, like the, I, I've, I, maybe you could even, either of you might have some input on this, but relative to like ideal positions for monitors, mm-hmm. you know, like at some hotels, check-in desk, you'll see them under the glass at an right. angle. And I've mm-hmm. heard that that's actually the ideal position. Because mm-hmm. if you think about reading a piece of paper on a table or something, you know, if you're working with papers all day, that's actually the angle that we're used to reading and is more um, ergonomically works better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this upright stuff is actually kind of weird, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I could see the iPad at that angle, yeah. right, with the touch screen. That that's comfortable. You could do that for longer mm-hmm. anyway. 
But if laptops somehow transformed so that the screens were at that angle, I could see them. Then you could use both more, you know, the yeah. touch interface as well as the keyboard. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That may be something that's too complex. And Apple doesn't like to do. Well, maybe what you I said, think you're right. I, I think they actually will go to touch screens on laptops. But well, maybe what you said, Ron, basically is their solution to that problem, namely the Magic Trackpad, because that mm -hmm. allows mm -hmm. a lot of the interaction. I mean, it's, it's not as beautiful or as as let's say as immediate as direct manipulation on a touch screen, right. but it's, it's abstract at one. Exactly. But it, it, it's more usable than using a mouse versus, um, something that is on a vertical touch right. screen. So it seems right. to be like they're, that's what they consider the compromise that works for now mm -hmm. with the technology that is available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then we were talking in a recent episode about, uh, Wacom or with, yeah. with uh, Sarah Jane that they now have a, um, a drawing pad that is a screen. So you are drawing oh, yeah. on the mm -hmm. screen. Yeah, that's cool. Right. See, now that makes a lot of sense to me because then you don't have the, that abstraction level. You're directly interacting right. with the mm -hmm. media like we would draw on paper or something. Um, I saw a pretty big model of, of that kind of device that a, a comic artist was using. But that must have been like a 20-inch device or something, yeah. and it was outrageously expensive. But that's exactly <laughs> where, the, where the technology... Uh, advances come in that you build something that is similar in, in, in features and in functionality, but is so much cheaper than mm -hmm. it was when the first devices came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's insane. If you just look at the prices for SSDs right now, it's just ridiculous or flash memory or whatever memory cards. So, but in general with, with all this, all the mobile stuff and like we're talking about possible touchscreens on a, on a laptop, whatever, it's interesting to me just from a human computer interaction perspective, mm -hmm that a long time ago when we used to write on paper with pens and things, <laughs> you know, you were actually directly manipulating the thing you're doing, you know, mm, with, right. where you're actually writing on something or right. you're um, molding a piece of clay, whatever it is, with your hands. And then it moved into the computer realm and then it became a keyboard and a mouse, which is kind of, Dif distanced from the actual hands. I mean, we have right, to a physical figure out how to do that, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. And now it seems to be moving back closer. The more right. technology moves on, the cheaper it gets. And this is not just with computers, but a lot of technology and the stuff that we do, it seems to be getting more back to Direct the actual way we do it because I think mm -hmm. that's kind of how we're built. You know, we want and, to do things that, with our hands. And that's a key concept in mobile development is, yeah. is direct manipulation of the data, that the objects mm -hmm. that you manipulate are the things you care about. They're not right. abstract buttons that then do something to mm -hmm. the data, right? You're right. directly manipulating. That's, it's, I think you're right, yeah. It's good yeah that's a good point about just mobile UIs in general too. Because I've seen a lot of, you know, we've all, we all have seen mobile apps that they were, obviously they just had not thought Thought the whole <laughs> yeah, thing exactly. through a different paradigm mm -hmm. of actually touching your data instead of just like moving it mm -hmm. by magic or something. You can't touch my data, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to touch your data. Man. <laughs> That's right. I'm married now. <laughs> okay, just, uh, going downhill fast. <laughs> yeah, so I'm. I'll, I'm, I'll be interested to see how the touchpad goes. Um, I'm glad that it's something beyond beside the Android besides the Android thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not an Android fan. I've seen guy at work got a Galaxy Tab mm -hmm. actually from Google because he mm -hmm. went to, yeah, the he Google, went to the, the Google thing. Developer conference. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's widescreen. 
and which I didn't like. Mm-hmm. It's weird to read on. It just is kind of the wrong. And I noticed that the touchpad's the more of a standard uh, aspect ratio. Yeah, it's four by three. But mm-hmm. there aren't any apps for it. Everything for the for the, the tab for the for this Galaxy tab. Oh, oh, there are oh. very very few actual tablet apps, mm-hmm. and the interaction's weird. And so I'm, I hope that the WebOS is better than the Android. Mm-hmm. That's just my personal opinion. See, that's, that's the key thing, that if you have slightly different implementations of interactions and look and feel and everything, you are addressing differently. It's true. Um, and you know, you're addressing different customers in terms of what their tastes are because yeah. it's not necessarily, necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Sure. So sure. I feel like if you prefer, I don't know, what do you prefer? What is your favorite platform in terms of mobile? Mobile? Yeah. I, uh, iOS stuff? Uh-huh. Obviously. Yeah, mine is oh. too, but only because that's what I've been using. See, that's so such long. an important point. I mean, that's you know? that's your experience with the operating system. Because and that, yeah, that, I think that's, and it's not just us, you know, Apple fanboys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that since Apple was really the very first, they get they got to set the standard, mm-hmm. and because of, well, they did it well. They did. I mean, they, they were what two or three years ahead of the nearest competitor. I mean, the yeah. iPhone. I still can't believe it. You look at f- photos of phones from. 2006, and that's when the iPhone, I believe it was 06. Yeah. Right, when the first iPhone was released. Uh, was it January of 06 or January of 07? It was demonstrated by mm-hmm. Steve Jobs and then uh, it was released in what, October or September yeah. of that year? Something like that. It, it is hard that's to underestimate how much it's changed. Yeah, they're just so far ahead. The one advantage I think HP has over the Android market potentially is that they do control the hardware and the software. That's a very important point. Just Absolutely. like Apple does with theirs. So, uh, and I think there's a potential benefit there for sure. better interaction, more integration. But I'm not sure if we if we mentioned that last time, but I think a real problem for Android, and I have the feeling that they're changing this right now by the way they control the OS and who has access to it is the fragmentation of the devices. Exactly. Now. Yeah, that's what that's I'm the consequence. Sure we we might have brought that up last time in our last podcast about how there's I think 311 devices that run Android and yeah. six of them can use Hulu.com. <laughs> yeah. right. And you can't blame the developers no. because the thing is you have different screen sizes and you have different features. That's, they have well, hardware have buttons, don't buttons, they have hardware and, buttons? I mean, exactly. yeah, different sensors. Yeah. And I feel like that that is one of the, the reasons why um, Google is so almost secretive about Android 3.0 that they're not open sourcing it yet but just Make sure who has access to that operating system. Mm-hmm. Maybe kind of rein that fragmentation in a little bit. I say good luck to that. Yeah. <laughs> and Apple sold twenty five million iPads to date, so uh, you know it's a, it's well, a big, big difference there. But um, someone will come in. You know, Apple Apple's doing well, but competition is good, and yeah. Here it goes. All right, Steve, you've got yeah. a news Mo- item for moving us. Moving on from moving on uh, from Mobile <laughs> News Weekly. Uh, <laughs> um, I, something that I uh, we have all noticed probably on some level is uh, the big deal is that Google's design and UX is getting less sucky. <laughs> That's such a nice way to put it, Steve. And what makes you say that, Steve? <laughs> well, let me tell you. Um, it kind of all came along with the uh, launch of Google+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And they, they launched their new uh, UX and their new design in, for Google in general at the same time. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I like it a lot, actually. 
And I, I, so which piece are you talking about that you like the uh, interface for? Well, Google um, Plus or Google Calendar? Or I, all of it, really. I like I like a lot of the, the thought that has gone into it. Before, it always felt like Google, like Google.com, for example, just the search bit of it. It always felt a bit developer designed, you know. A bit, yeah. Because <laughs> it agree was. That it was. It felt completely, you know, developer designed. Which is not always a bad thing. Don't get me wrong, but for usually from a aesthetics point of view and uh, usability point of view, it's not always the best. Now, Google was always. I think they did a good job of just general usability as far as it's easy to click on a link, things like that. But. Um, I came across actually a blog post on Google's official blog um, entitled Evolving the Google Design and Experience. And they explain a little bit about this process and their, uh, their, their uh, timeline and how they're doing things. And how they now have, um, it says, the, Google, the new Google experience that we've begun working toward is founded on three key design principles, focus, elasticity, and effortlessness. Focus. Elasticity and, and effortlessness. effortlessness. Okay, the last one makes sense. So focus uh, is it, it says whether you're searching, emailing, or looking for a map, the only thing you should be concerned about is getting what you want. So focus is dealing with one thing at a time. Um, and then elasticity as far as the screen size, you know, we're dealing with mobile things now. Okay. We're dealing with big screens, small screens, different UIs. I see what they mean. So everything should now. be... Easy to focus on what you're doing without getting distracted by a whole bunch of other stuff, as well as viewable on anything and still get a decent experience. And effortlessness as far as, um, they say, combining power with simplicity. Uh, they want to have it a simple and clean look, but be able to do a lot with it. So um, like Google Plus specifically was, uh, I think we've all heard this, was the lead designer for it was... Um, Andy Hertzfeld, uh, one of the guys, I think we mentioned this last week, or last uh, podcast, whatever. And uh, I can tell that a lot more design has gone into the UI. Like the biggest thing you notice now is there actually is, there are fewer distractions on just google.com, but you have this black bar at the top that has, it's kind of, it looks nice, little bolder colors, they say, and um, different ways to get to different things. I don't know. In general, I I like the whole thing, and I, it seem, I can tell that they have done sp- purposely something different um, to bring Google kind of up to date a bit. I guess I don't know how else to put it, but I mean it's possibly a uh, personal preference thing. But and I would generally agree that the the the, the design part that I am liking is um, is Google Plus. So, you know, if you're doing anything yeah. there of looking at, if I'm looking at my profile or I'm looking at my circles, um, I think they've done a, a much better job of, I think it's in part they're using, you know, graphics actually to illuminate things. Because mm-hmm. to me, Google has been a heavy text driven yeah. forever. Um, and I think they've done a good job. And, you know, the, the graphics are large enough. So, like the actual elements that show how many people are in my family circle and how many people are in my friend circle and that kind of a mm-hmm. thing is. Um, I do find that appealing. It's easy for my brain to scan the page, grasp the information I want, and make a decision and do something. Whereas when it was so text-centric before, I had to really, you had to think a lot until you got used to it. But but the parts I'm not so excited about, and it could just be honestly because, I, you know, they changed it, right? But I used, I used the Gmail web interface 
and the Google Calendar web interface for everything all day long. I mean, that right. is where I spend the vast majority of my time on the web. Mm-hmm. And um, so when they change, you know, I'm using the new Google Calendar version right now, and uh, you know, it's, it's just different. And so it's it just takes a while to get used to. But some things I think are less helpful. You know, like I have I have a quite a number of calendars I do need to look at and turn on and off to overlay and compare. Mm-hmm. And I used to have a larger number I could just see without scrolling. Now I have to scroll up and down to see, mm. you know, to turn mm. a few of them on and off. Um, I thought there, the way they used to do it to indicate which one calendars were active, I thought was a little more obvious because uh, they highlighted the whole row. Right. Uh, now they're just highlighting the little triangular icon next to the calendar name um when that calendar is turned on um so i don't know you know uh, part of it again i'll I'll be honest is just that i'm not used to it yet right and and i used to like the white text on the colored field for the events within the calendar to me that was higher contrast and easier to read than they've gone out of black text on the colored field uh, I think there's not quite as much contrast, and I find that a little harder to read. Yeah, I notice that some some colors are white text, some are black text. Yeah, I, that is true as well. And there is still a button at the top that says "Use the classic look." Yes, I'm forcing <laughs> so, myself to use. Quit the new complaining, Ron. To, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I should, but some things some things are definitely improved. Uh, like on the Gmail interface, um, I, I do searching a lot. You know, you do some kind of search query and pull up, and then it highlights all that text, and you want to turn off highlighting. Highlighting used to be its own separate button just on the on the page, mm-hmm. which was nice, and I knew where it was, and I was frustrated at first with the new Gmail that I couldn't find the button. They moved it under the More link to turn mm. off highlighting, but that's actually a better place for it because when I've scrolled down a long page, the turn off highlighting was all the way at the top because it was a fixed yeah. button on the, on the background, and I had to scroll all the way to the top. So I grumbled about that for about eight seconds. And then when I realized that <laughs> it was on the more link, I was oh, that's actually a lot better. <laughs> yeah, and some of the, I, some of this I agree, I agree with, and some I think that it's just it's like when everybody, whenever Facebook like moves a button, yeah, people start groups upset. and complain and blah blah blah. But mm-hmm. then in a week, everybody's like, oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Don't change it again. <laughs> exactly. You know. So I, in general, I'm glad that Google is kind of still staying on top of good usability and nice design mm-hmm. um, and kind of keeping with the times a bit and not just sitting on their laurels because they have all the money in the world. <laughs> yes. Whereas that actually Apple has all the money yes, in the world. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we both do. <laughs> well, the, the thing I like about the, the three guiding principles is in fact the first one about focus because so many websites for whatever reason, are so chock full of stuff that distract you from the actual content. Mm-hmm. It's really annoying. If you look at the the new Google.com main search page, there's a little row of stuff at the top with the main navigation and a few other things at the bottom. But the key thing that you see and that you can, wait for it, focus on <laughs> is the actual search field, which in fact moves to the top of the page as soon as you start typing something. And I just like it if you go to a web page that has a lot of white space and is, let's say it's not noisy. You know, there's I think there's something like information noise that just sort of mm-hmm. overpowers mm-hmm. your brain and you, you're trying to find information because that's the key thing. You're, you're looking for something. And if all the stuff besides what you're looking for is distracting you, like animated ads or something, I hate that. So <laughs> I love the clean look and I like it that a company, for whatever reason, whatever motivation they have, is showing that you can build a website that is very clean, very simple, 
and yet still makes business sense. I mean, of course, yeah. Google is is an unusual company in a lot of ways. But still, it, it shows this is feasible. Think about it. Don't just overload your pages. Sure. Yep, I agree. Yeah, good use, actually, good use of white space on Google Plus in particular. And I think they've, I think they've done a really good job. The focus on the well, I love the, I love the interactions in Google Plus. The, especially the, like, I was just listening, I forget which podcast it was. They're basically saying, well, Facebook does the same thing. You can have lists of people, which is exactly what sure. a circle is. Sure. But the guy made the point, and I totally agreed with it, that the reason Google circles are awesome is the UI. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. drag the little guy and you drop him in your circle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it forces you for also, it forces you, you cannot add somebody without having them in a circle. You can't just have them on a random, I guess you could create a everybody circle, but it's not really helpful. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it kind of forces you to, to compartmentalize things a little bit. But anyway, don't wanna, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I thought that was uh, interesting stuff. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So what's our next item? Let's move on to, um, I've already covered the WordPress stuff, so let's go on to John's um, next item. Um, that's a great decision, Ron, because what I'll be saying here is next topic ties into a detail in, in Google+, Plus, which true. truth be told, I'm not using. But I heard that one of the, the sort of not so... Um, not so so outstanding features in terms of awareness is the fact that you can export your data, so your data is not locked into Google Plus. Is that oh, really? right? Can you confirm that? I, I don't know. I haven't. I've only played with it a little bit so far. Uh-huh. Hmm. Because I, I read that somewhere that that Google says if this is your data, if you want to move that to another platform, if you want to take it out. Data liberation data is liberation. a tab. See, uh, there you go. I think you can do that on Facebook now, though, too. I'm pretty sure you can export that. I don't know if it's usable in any way or for Google, you can for that click, matter. You can click a button to download everything or do mm-hmm. just your web uh, photos, just profile data, stream data, buzz data, and circles in context. So thank you for confirming that, Steve. Yeah, sure. Because that's exactly... I'm glad what, you mentioned it. I didn't know. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> much appreciated. <laughs> well, the thing, the, the latest I heard about Facebook in, in, in this uh, arena is that there was a plug-in that would let you export your data from Facebook, but that Facebook actually, um, let's say, boycotts that that plugin, or you know, they they try to to make sure that it doesn't work because they want to keep that data sort of in their fence garden, if you so will. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an interesting blog post by Marco Arment, which uh, who is the uh, mastermind behind Instapaper, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I suggest everyone should look, have a look at if you read mm-hmm. a lot online. Mm-hmm. Instapaper.com, and he was the former tech guru uh, behind Tumblr. And he has written an article, and that is called Own Your Identity. And basically the point he makes, if I'm paraphrasing here, is that even if you use different platforms, do make sure that things like the domain that points to your content or your personal email address is something that you own. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with Facebook, of course, is... uh, it happens so often that as someone who's not on Facebook, like myself, you might see an interesting link on uh, on Twitter or in a blog post. You try to go there and it says, oh, please log in to see this resource. And um, this is, I find that so annoying because people put that stuff on the internet and they think it's publicly available, but it's not. And of course, the value for Facebook is in the data that people put in there. 
and in their personal data because, I mean, they make their money via advertising, just mm -hmm. like Google. Mm -hmm. So the customers are not the users, or let me put it this way, the users are not the customers, yeah. but advertisers are the customers for mm -hmm. these companies. Mm -hmm. Financially, right, yeah. And um, in fact, Armand links to a, to a blog post by a tech journalist, and I hadn't heard of this guy before, but he writes really cool stuff. And he's the lead writer for readwriteweb.com, mm -hmm. Marshall Kirkpatrick. Okay. And his blog post is Good why blog. I'll never redirect my personal blog to Google+. And he makes the same point that you should own, let, let me put it this way, you should own your internet personality or your internet identity. And for example, um, quoting from that article, he writes, rather than chasing people around from one platform to another where they prefer to spend their time, I'm going to sit right here on a site I own and wait for the future to become interoperable with me. So what mm -hmm. he's saying is he's not following well. the, the platform <laughs> du jour around right. and moving his stuff from platform to platform, if that is possible. But he has his platform and says, okay, this is my stuff that I'm putting out onto the internet, and I want to control what it looks like, what's in my sidebar, mm -hmm. um, who has access, if you so will. And if you're on a different platform like Facebook, you're welcome to, to tie that platform into what I have, but I'm not giving up control over what I own in terms of content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I find that an, a pretty amazing move. I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of it, to be honest. But I think it's great that Google says, okay, this is your stuff. If you want to take it out of this container, you're more than welcome to do so. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't really say how, how easy it is to move the stuff from Google Plus and sort of dump it into another platform. But at least you can take your data and do with it whatever you like. Because another approach would, of course, be to just move copies onto another platform that you have right. a copy on your hard drive. Mm -hmm. Like if you tweet a picture. But... I prefer that people have access to what they put out onto the internet. And also that there is no gateway that sort of controls who has access outside of that platform, like I just said. Yeah, it's interesting. I appreciated some of your thoughts there. It got me thinking about the difference between, you know, the open web. You know, I read those two, the articles that you just mentioned. Um, and, you know, if you have your own blog, that's your own domain name, you're controlling your content, of course, and you're owning your content, and you can have RSS feeds, and people can consume that in whatever ways that uh, people have become used to consuming mm -hmm. all those things. And of course, that content is all the content that you or I want to make publicly available to the whole world, right? Yeah, totally. Because because generally blogs are fully public mm -hmm. access, um, at least in the context that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, well, what's the difference on a social network, really? Because I would never, you know, he talks about he would never move his blog to Google+. Plus. Right. Well, I wouldn't either because I want my blog to be publicly <laughs> accessible mm -hmm. to everybody. Um, so what's different in a social network, you know, what do I do differently there? Well, you know, I might, I might want to tell people where I am, you know, and check in on Foursquare. Yeah. But I want that to be a smaller subset of people uh, who I'm broadcasting that kind of information to. Uh, so I think that's part of the difference, right? Is is of layers of information of who I want to share things with, and they're you know I want to share things with colleagues, but not necessarily the whole world, and that would be down in one of these social platforms as opposed to on my blog. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's it's the difference between interacting in a, in a social network in whatever environment and publishing stuff. Because if you publish yes. something like a blog post or a yeah. tweet, mm -hmm. um, well, I mean. Within the in the context of a social network, you might limit the recipient circle, literally, like Google right. circles, right. to a certain list of people if you tweet about where you are right now because you might not want right. the world to know. Right. But if you're publishing something that you want to share, like you said, with the rest of the world, 
I don't want anybody else to tell me who can access that data. Agreed. Specifically, yeah. it, who has control over that login screen for Facebook? It's not me. I can say, okay, right. I'll give out a password and people can access that data, but Google, uh, not Google, sorry, C4 again slipped, there you go. But <laughs> Facebook says, okay, if you're not on Facebook, you're not playing. Right. And that's the advantage of a self-hosted blog, whether yeah. it's WordPress or Tumblr or totally. whatever. If you self-install, yes, it's open source software. If they went out of business and never updated it, you might have some issues there in the long mm -hmm. run. But you know, at least you're controlling your installation, like well, you said. It's really, it's really just a the kind of the grown-up version of the problem we've had for a long time with the email addresses, which is addressed in the in the article. Mm -hmm. You know, because how many of us thought I'm going to have this Prodigy.com account <laughs> forever? <laughs> Remember the the numbers that you got at CompuServe? Yeah, you didn't have your numbers, real yeah, name; exactly. it was just numbers. Yeah, was what, it like a number form with a dot in there somewhere? Wasn't that like really weird? Like nine seven zero five five dot three three four or something like yeah. that. There's like there's that. a guy, who, one of my uh, <laughs> clients. I still do work for him once in a while. It, their their company still uses a cs.com address. I'm like, wow. really, buddy? Wow. And I went to his office. He's like, hey, let me get my email. It's like. You got mail. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a little AOL wow. sound. You know, so, Holy you know, cow. everybody thought I'm going to have this forever. Then it's an AOL account. Then my parents got a uh, internet connection through uh, Quest. So it was a Q.com account. Mm -hmm. Well, then they changed host pro uh, internet provider. And so that's gone. Right. Now they got it. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, your best bet, because I don't want a website and all this stuff. They just, I said Gmail account. It's probably the best bet. For them, for a while, is. yeah, you know, for, for I don't know years. how long, maybe more. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. who knows? Mm -hmm. Google could blow up tomorrow. I, I don't know, but I personally have always had my own domain, right? Account. Yeah, I actually just got Kathy and uh, a couple of the relatives hooked up on my, you know, one of my domain names for email because then it's it's constant, yeah, right? You know, and we have control over that. And uh, now she's not tied to Comcast for her personal email. Has more choices. Yep, that way. Yeah, I like the idea of owning owning that domain. Plus, then you can do nice things like ron at codegeek.net, right? Which mm -hmm. is hard to, hard to get other places. Although, although one interesting historical fact, which maybe both of you know, but Laurie Maycumber, my business partner in The Hive and other things, social media pilots, um, she was such an early adopter of all of this stuff mm -hmm. that her original email address was Laurie at AOL.com. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when I learned that, I was like <laughs> bowing, like, wow, that's, that is wow. an early adapter. Not so much. Hard to do that kind of a thing now, right? Yeah. It, it, finding one of, one of my friends was posting on Facebook about, okay, what, what's going to be my email address for my Google account for Google Plus? Because everything was taken. And he doesn't have a, I mean, it's a kind of a unique name. Name is Noel Green. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody's named Noel Green, <laughs> but <laughs> not a common one. <laughs> but everybody, every variation he could think of it with dashes, dots, whatever mm -hmm. numbers before used it, oh, used. And I, the only thing I can imagine is there's got to be bots out there, you know, huh? That'd be just, sad. just scooping stuff up. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. That'd be sad. But um, yeah. I was I was lucky enough. It's like the same thing with, no. the, with domain names as well. Okay, I have to plead ignorance. So, what do you mean by your username and Google Plus? Well, he he has he has what he does. What a lot of people do, like I I know that you do as well. You tie your domain name into the Gmail the system, Google system, the yeah. Google system, like yeah. as a as an uh, Google so he's apps, like his Gmail. So he has his web design company, whatever, as a Google app system. But he he wants, but frustratingly. 
Google does not allow you to connect those. So it's Google like a separate yeah. uh, ecosystem or whatever. It is currently. See, my my email address change. is steve at clevercubed.com. And so I just created a Google account, steve at clevercubed.com. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easy. I just use the same password. It's, it's kind of irrelevant to me which one it is. But sometimes I get into the calendar. I'm like, wait, that's not the right calendar. That's the Gmail calendar for Google for the Google account, not my Clever Cubed calendar for my Clever Cubed account. And so it's you don't know which you're logged into sometimes. Yeah. So he was trying to come up with something and he couldn't find it. But it's the same thing with, with domain names. Find, you're lucky if you find any domain name that's available these days. I actually bought stevemartin.me. Oh, cool. That's impressive. I, I was, I was like, Steve well, Martin I, anything. I, I know. <laughs> that was a pretty common name. Yeah. So. Steve Martin would not give me stevemartin.com. You're kidding. No. <laughs> How much did you offer him? Uh, not anything, actually. <laughs> well, there's problem number one. <laughs> yeah. But he, he's the, he thought he had better use to it, I guess. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, my the next thing that I wanted to bring up just briefly, actually, is um, there's a new book for sale at RosenfeldMedia.com. And I know I've mentioned RosenfeldMedia.com before. They have... We're groupies. Yeah. they they are. It's the best collection of user experience books. And web books. And, and it's, yeah, and web books in general that anywhere out there. And they're all, sell, they're all published by... Um, Rosenfeld, uh, Louis, Lou Rosenfeld or Louis Rosenfeld as he has his name on here. Um, but he, uh, he has great stuff and I'm a big fan of, uh, all, all the books that are out so far that I've read. Um, like the prototyping book I have, um, remote research, card sorting, uh, web form design by Luke Robluski is awesome. Just used that at work last week. And so, and there's a whole bunch planned, but the one that's out now is search analytics for your site. And he actually talked about this topic at the IA Summit um, in April. Did? Yeah, Lou oh, Rosenfeld okay. did. He did a one of the main ta- one main uh, speeches, keynotes, whatever, uh-huh. um, about how the fact that you people you don't realize how much data is coming in from your search queries on your website. Mm-hmm. If you have any kind of website that has a search function, mm-hmm. which is kind of another reason not to use Google's, you know, plug-in search function, which uh, that's another topic. Another topic I'll get on to. Right. <laughs> but um the fact that if you what you can do is you can see things like what do people what do the real world call the things that I have? Right. Oh yeah. You uh-huh. know, it's so it's kind of like a card sorting thing where you have people so, sort so things out. Talking about looking it. like at the search logs, the from actual the log box? files. Okay. Yeah, the actual log okay. files, and, and there's ways to do that. And he explains it all in the book. I haven't read the book yet, but it just went on sale. But yeah, looking through all the data you have, and if you kind of peel that, peel some of that stuff out, you can find out what first of all what people are looking for, what they call it, how they search. And all kinds of stuff that you can't find any, even by interviewing people, you can't find, figure it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or even doing a usability study, you can't figure that kind of stuff out. And you could probably, I, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, one of the things that occurs to me is you could figure out if you're a product manufacturer, right? You could, mm-hmm. you might be able to discover products that you don't carry that people are looking for right. that could make you more money. Yeah. Right. And what are people searching for? If they're searching for blue socks and you don't carry those. Because we look, we, we do, we kind of try to get some of that information from search analytics from Google. Like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the 
Google Analytics, you yeah, can but your see own search boxes even. You can see what people searched for to get to your site or what they looked at on your site, but seeing what they searched for within your own website is can be really valuable. So, I just wanted to point everybody that to that it's rosenfeldmedia.com. Very cool. And uh, it just was released a couple of days ago. So, excellent. Buy it. And they it looks like they have a uh, paperback as well as screen optimized PDF and EPUB and Mobi formats. So, there yeah. are lots of options. Reasonably priced. Yep. Uh, so I had a few more mobile stats, something that I try to pay attention to. Uh, so there was a Pew Internet Project report that was released uh, yesterday, Monday the 11th. Had some interesting stats about cell phones. Um, 83% of the people interviewed, which is around 2,300 people in the U.S. So this is a U.S. study. 83% of people in the U.S. Uh, said that they owned a cell phone of some kind. And 35% of respondents uh, that were questioned in English or Spanish said that they owned a smartphone. Mm. So that is mm. um, pretty amazing, actually, just to see the numbers. You know, So 35% of people own smartphones. The thing that caught my attention in the headline of this article, though, let me find it in my, is that percentage-wise, you add that up to the number of people that have smartphones, that's more than the number of people that have bachelor's degrees in the United States. <laughs> well, it's not a requirement, so. <laughs> That's true. I do, I do wonder what the definition of smartphone is, if they gave them a definition or it's just said smartphone. Oh, well, that's a good point. Because mm-hmm. I know that I, I've met, I met a guy at church. He has like a flip phone that has oh. an address book on it. He's like, yeah, I'm a smartphone. Uh, <laughs> like, gotcha. yeah, well. And, and most feature phones now do have web browsers, for example. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, people with feature phones can browse the web. Um that's a good point. So about uh, other things in the study, and I have a link to the actual study, so you could take a look and see exactly what they, yeah, if they define that or not. I, yeah, yeah. Well, the fun thing is you just mentioned the word feature phone. <laughs> what does that even mean? I mean, every phone has feature. I don't understand. It should be a, like, like smartphone and maybe dumb phone, phone or something. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I had heard that f- f- term for the first time not too long ago, and I thought, mm-hmm. where did that term come yeah. from? And then I started hearing it more and more. Yeah. So I don't know where it came from, but it well, seems I, to be. I, I found this out one time. It came from the first cell phones where they made calls. Right. Period. Okay. Sure. Right. I mean, huh. yeah. That's all. You, you remember that time? It's like a thousand years ago. You know, with, a, with a little suitcase calls? that had yeah. the battery. Called them bricks for a reason. I had one of those <laughs> when I worked in Oklahoma. They gave me one of those things, like a little suitcase. It was hilarious. That's awesome. Anyway, you're special. <laughs> so they um, in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't forget the Oklahoma part. Anyway, so that was just cell phone, and then phones came out with address books and memory and things like that, that was a feature phone because oh. it had features. And beyond now, making phone calls. Beyond making phone calls uh-huh. and, and, a, and whatever else built in. But now we have smartphones. So that was an early term. Yeah, it was an the early term that came before the smartphone. So if, they, if we named them both now, mm-hmm. we'd call it a dumb phone and a smartphone maybe. I don't yeah. know. But that's just the progressive naming. I mean, of course, the, the thing is, if it's an established term, everybody knows what we're talking about. But sure. still, it's, sometimes it's fun to just dig into where, oh, yeah. <laughs> where it's came from. Well, for those people with dumb phones, um, <laughs> no, but so of, uh, let's see, I think in this stat, I think refers to the people that have smartphones. But anyway, this next stat is uh, 70% um, use their phone to access the internet every single day. Um, so that's pretty impressive. And this stat was also interesting that nearly a third of smartphone owners use their device as their primary internet connection. Primary? Yep. Wow. 
And you know, this is the predicted trend, right? That that there will be more mobile devices connected and accessing the web than laptops and desktops like two oh, yeah. years from now. Yeah, and that's not far so away. So we can see that trend already if a third of smartphone owners are already using their phone as their primary internet connection device. Wow. Uh, that's impressive. So anyway, a few mobile stats there. And then one other in the mobile payments world caught my attention. Uh, and this is really wild, just about how fast mobile payments are getting picked up. So PayPal is seeing up to $10 million in mobile payment volume a day mm. as of June 2011. What's interesting about this is compared to earlier this year, right? This is only July, mm -hmm. right? So they had they had reported in March that they were getting six million dollars a day in payments. Whoa. That's just in March, uh, exactly. And they're now already up to ten. Sheesh! Just three months later, that was June stats. Um, and then the other interesting thing is PayPal is currently has eight million customers who are regularly making purchases on their mobile phones, up from a previously reported six million users. I don't have the date on when that mm. six million number was uh, reported. Did you have a, an example run recently in a presentation? What the most expensive thing was? Wasn't that like a plane or oh, something? Oh yeah, I think the most expensive item ever purchased, known known item purchased uh -huh. on a uh, phone was a five hundred thousand dollar airplane. Wow! Uh, purchased on an eBay sale through an iPhone. <laughs> so, so, so I, uh, I'm pretty sure Luke Robluski mentioned that at a seminar. Wow. So I, I was looking for that stat and couldn't find it, but as to what source was. I think I'd want to see bigger pictures of that. <laughs> <laughs> one, one would presume that that wasn't the only interaction oh, yeah. with, the, yeah. uh, with the sale item, but who knows, you know? Who knows? Could be. I remember that, that you um, are using Square now. Yes. Right? Oh, you use it? Yes. I have an account, but I don't need <laughs> Yeah, you know. we used it. Um, if anybody wants to give me money, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Take my rent here. Yes, I was going to say, so, so the first purchase made was uh, some high rent from, actually, from John uh, through Square. Nice. For, and I wonder, do, do they have, like, a limitation of what you can transfer via the mobile phone? Is there something like a maximum amount that you can transfer? I'm sure. Yeah, the, there's a, there's I mean, per transaction a limit and a okay. monthly limit, but I forget uh -huh. what they are. Yeah, I don't. They're pretty. Recall. They're pretty decent. You know, in the thousands. I guess it's usually more the limit on the on the customer's credit card than the yeah. square limit. That comes yeah, into play. that's a good question. I haven't looked into the, what the limits are, but it's a neat system. I mean, yeah. so you, you've seen it, but so it's a little teeny card reader that mm -hmm. plugs into the headphone jack. Mm -hmm. And does that work on Android also? It would Which depend on the app, I would assume. I don't. Um, know. I have no idea. I mean, I the user know. experience was. Fantastic! Yeah, that was so yeah. polished. It's so easy to use, and the, you know, I have I've run several, or I'm part of several different businesses. So for me, what's really appealing about it is that it's a two point seven five percent transaction fee yeah. for card present, which is less than PayPal's two point nine. But even better is there's no monthly That's fee. That's awesome. Because for yes. PayPal, you know, we, we had one account, thirty dollars a month to have a virtual terminal and run credit cards that way for payments. But this is lower percentage and mm -hmm. no monthly fee. So I was able to set up a Square Up account with each of my businesses and then I just have to log in on the app to the proper business nice. and I can use the same reader and the same phone and the same app. I just have to log in as who I want to charge or charge to go to. Yeah, when I was in San Francisco, I, I stopped by some random coffee shop <laughs> and there's a couple of them in San Francisco. There are? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the cash register was an iPad and they had like this specially kind of carved like wooden case it was like sitting in and it had power to it all the time of course with a square 
reader on it. Oh, wow. And so, uh, and if someone paid by cash, they would just, because you can you do cash you transactions. Do cash transactions. The they would just type terminal. it in mm-hmm. and get the change and then you know, make the change out of their drawer. And the, Or if it was a, the, 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 with a credit card, they just swipe it through and do it that way. Clever. But, man, <laughs> it really uh, changes things a lot. And to answer your question, Ron, it's available for Android as well. Oh, it says, simple, elegant app for your Android, iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch. Excellent. Cool. So right. it's neat that that's available. Hmm. Well, so far of your purchase, 49 cents has shown up in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope there's some more coming. <laughs> the rent is really cheap here. Yeah. <laughs> Cheapest co-working space I ever went to. <laughs> How many cents? 49. I, th- I think th- that's where San Francisco comes into play again. See, 1849, Gold Rush, there you go. Oh, and then oh they took goodness. it back. That's it all really comes funny. back to San Francisco, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, see. we'll see what happens with that. That's pretty funny. I was just checking to see because I, I haven't yet figured out how the money shows up from the Square account to mm-hmm. the bank account. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're connected, so I don't know if it just clears once a month or once a week, or do you have to go like PayPal get, and say transfer the money? It's daily on the website. Huh? It says daily payout on the website. Oh, okay. So, well, it was just yesterday, so it hasn't shown up yet. Yeah. Let's let's confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Along with Ron's uh, bank username and password. Yeah, exactly. Just so you check And yourself. social security number. Exactly. Just in case. And all my passwords for everything. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, all we have for new stuff for today. Yeah, cool. And uh, let's go ahead and... Good uh, discussions. Yeah. Let's... Great. I mean, we could keep going. I've got more oh, yeah. stuff we could discuss, but we're trying to not uh, fill up everyone's iPod completely with the, with the show. This is an <laughs> exercise in self-restraint right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do want to mention the podcast sponsor, we uh, audible.com. And uh, I am a massive user of audible.com and have been for years and years and years. I've got Hundreds of books, and I know Ron has as well. Do you do, yeah. you do Audible? Do they have that in Germany? Yeah. Well, I think it's supported by uh, uh, somehow as well. Okay, I've been a long time Audible user. My first device that I used Audible with was a Rio. Remember the Rio yeah. MP3 players? <laughs> Remember the and, Rio? I mean, that's like a historical question. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. What was the name? There's this Carbon, the Rio Carbon. Rio that, Carbon. Was, that was actually one of the best MP3 players ever built, I think. The, yeah. the, the hardware controls on that, I would love to see what you thought about the hardware controls. Are they still around Rio? at all? I don't know. They don't make hardware that I've seen. Huh. I think the iPod killed them. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, I, I actually had um, a Palm with the Audible app on it. Okay. That I it played, it was it was a bit of a pain. Yeah, I had I had I was a big Palm Pilot user, but I never put the Audible stuff. Never and now I out. use Audible app on my iPhone all the time. Yeah, same here. That's how I do it now. Yeah, because I can just download it straight. If that's from, what's brilliant about the iPad and iPhone app, yeah, is you can just download straight to the device off of a Wi-Fi network. You don't yeah. have to sync it with iTunes, and you, right. so you don't have to download through iTunes and then sync. Mm-hmm. You just download it, and it's oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and the. The the nice thing about Audible is whenever all these hundreds of books, I can like if I'm bored, don't have enough podcasts to listen to. <laughs> I can't imagine I'd ever be bored. To you. <laughs> uh, too many uh, inputs. Um, <laughs> no, I can. I actually on my iPhone, I can just if I if I've got if I have Wi-Fi because it's you know over twenty megabytes or whatever, AT&T doesn't let download it. But um, if I'm on Wi-Fi, I can just go through all of the books and download any of them and start listening to them. And that's what I did this past week. 
with Lynchpin by Seth Godin, which is my mm. pick for the week. And if you have not read Lynchpin, what's that one? And I don't know what you're waiting for. Because I read some of his other books, but I don't, <clears throat> it I don't is know what that one's about. The best book Seth Godin has ever written. He wow, actually said that he says, <clears throat> I've heard him say elsewhere, I don't think he says it in the book, but um, all of the other books and everything else are kind of were leading up to this. Hmm. This is kind of like opus magnum of Seth Godin. And uh, what it is about is um, how to be indispensable, basically. And okay. he, he approaches it from both directions, from the, the uh, perspective of an employer and the perspective of an employee slash freelancer, whatever. Okay. And um, and he can he does a good job of mixing the the two together. And his point is, you know, things are changing, duh, <laughs> in the world. <laughs> the way we interact with people, the way um, you know, things like Google Plus and Facebook bringing people closer together. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with your tribes differently, which is another book he wrote. wrote tribes. Yeah, I read you, that one. That one I like yeah. a lot. Um, you're dealing with tribes differently, and what is valuable these days is not domain knowledge, not just knowing a lot about it stuff. Because I've got I've got Wikipedia, I've got the internet, I can answer any question in five seconds if you let me. And uh, so it's not that, and it's not necessarily skills how to do things you know, manually, whatever. Because that it's easy to off- ship that offshore, whatever. But what really is becoming valuable is the um, is leadership and doing something different and out that cannot be replaced and creativity. And so he he goes through it. It's a very long. You have to you have to listen to the whole thing from beginning to end. And he talks about how how valuable it is, what it is, and how you're you are going to try to stop yourself from doing it, basically. Okay. And this is where he gets into the idea of the lizard, lizard brain. brain. Oh, yeah. yeah, you've heard you've heard this kind of thrown around. Mm-hmm. This is like the bit of the brain at the top of your brain stem that basically wants to survive or procreate or eat and, and not get killed. Right. And so you're actually there's actually a lot more fear when you think about it of succeeding than there is fear of failure. Because if you're afraid that if I succeed, then I'm gonna have to start doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And what would that be? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so the people who are going to be most successful and most useful and indispensable in the future are these people who are linchpins who you remove them and everything falls apart. Hmm. You know, a linchpin is a little piece of metal that holds things together. That's all it does. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he references he actually uh, 37 Signals and talks about how it is a company that is made of linchpins and they purposely only hire people who are indispensable. They don't get a guy to just do the grunt work they will outsource that or whatever if it needs done, but they only hire people who cannot, you cannot get rid of them because everything will fall apart. Hmm. And that's, that's risky because if, what if someone leaves, then right. stuff falls yeah. apart, <laughs> but that's the best way to win. So, hmm. um, I, I, I did a, um, I did a, uh, a class at my church actually on, on finding a job and how to, how to apply for jobs in the new market and so forth. And this was one of the best, books I could possibly give anybody if they if you're looking for a job or if you have a job and you want to be better at it or if you're a freelancer or a business owner and you want to improve got to read the book cool there is no way around downloading it, it right now <laughs> thank you oh yeah so yeah definitely got to read it so if you want to get that book for yourself for free 
you can go to audibletrial.com slash Einstein. And just if you sign up for the account, you get the free audiobook. You're welcome to cancel it after that, and uh, you won't be charged for it or anything like that. But um, Audible in general is great, and that, that book is great. And Seth Godin reads it himself. Yeah, he, I read, yeah, yeah, he does a pretty great. good job. He's a good reader. Go to audibletrial.com slash Einstein. So, John, do you have a blog for us? I do have a blog for you, and it's called uxforthemasses.com. It's written by Neil Turner. He's a UX designer from the UK, and it's pretty low traffic. So there's, I'd say, on average, an article per month, give or take. But what I like is there's such a wealth of information on that website already. And these articles are kind of on the longish side, but they're very insightful. And just give you two examples of, of what he's covering. There's one called The Joy of Sketching. Mm, nice. Uh, another one is called A Guide to Carrying Out Usability Reviews, which mm. I like because it's, you know, it's very often you have these, these um, technical terms and people think they know what they mean and how you um, exercise these things. And um, he explains aspects that you kind of might have internalized, but you forgot that you knew it. <laughs> so, for example, the, the most recent post is called The 10 UX Mistakes to Avoid. And... Um, one of the things he mentions, for example, is having separate UX researchers and designers. And you think, well, how does hmm. that come into play? And in fact, when I saw that headline, it reminded me of uh, Dieter Rahm's uh, favorite, uh, favorite. See, that's here's a Freudian quote. Uh, that's Freudian slip. That's, that's my second one today. Um, <laughs> because I said like the favorite quote. But I think it's, it's one of the most important ones. And he said, design is not a democracy. So you have to have one person or at least a small team that calls the shots mm -hmm. to make sure that the design is consistent. And um, basically um, what, what you see in this article is that a lot, he says a lot of organizations have separate UX research and design teams. So it comes down to how well these communicate. So yeah, ideally huge. it would be, should be run one team. Maybe, maybe not one person doing research and design, but at least that you, that you know is an integral team that works on, on both sides of these things. So uh, another thing, another feature I found on this website, which I think is pretty cool, is there's a, a meta search that runs on 22 websites um, to search for design patterns. So this is great for, for preventing you from reinventing the interaction wheel, so to speak. Hmm. And uh, if you look for some things like radio buttons or whatever, and you see a whole lot of stuff that you can check out and see what kind of patterns people use to implement these. So again, the, the blog is called UX for the Masses, and the subtitle says, Because it ain't bleeding rocket science. And you can find the website at uxforthemasses.com, and that's one word, no hyphens. This looks like a great website. I wish I had found this earlier. There you go. Thank you, sir. You bet. Very cool. So mine today is uh, Luke Robluski's website. So that's at lukew.com. Awesome URL. And uh, he, he's been around a while. He's been around a while. <laughs> yes, he was an early adopter of the internet. Pretty sure there. And uh, I, I enjoy his his uh, website in general. Um, he has three main sections about writings and presentations, and the writings is essentially his blog section. Um, and what I like in there, especially, there's all kinds of very good stuff. Uh, but look for the data Mondays because I really like staying up on various stats, especially relative to mobile. And uh, on Data data Mondays, he uh, will list various interesting stats and the sources for them with direct links. So those are, are very fun things to check out. And uh, just poke around the rest of his site as well. He does a lot of presentations on mobile and on usability 
and other things. And if you uh, go to his presentation section, he has slides and audio and video of lots of his presentations. So it's a great way to get to know Luke and, and some absolutely, you know, top end information about how to uh, make usable mobile stuff for the web these days. Yeah, I'm constantly referencing Luke's stuff in some way. <laughs> and and I and and Twitter, for example, I'll, I'll someone will say, there's a great article about whatever, and I'll click on it. It happens to be Luke's site, <laughs> his blog. And, and talking about early adopter, he mentioned at one of his recent presentations, he, he was at NCSA and helped develop Mosaic. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeesh. The original web browser. Cool stuff. He made the interwebs. Well, I wanted to uh, point everybody to the Adaptive Path blog. I don't oh, know. I, so I, awesome. A whole yes, lot of people, I'm sure, have blog. heard of Plus Adaptive one. Path. <laughs> plus one. <laughs> Are you sure you don't have a Google account? Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you're not familiar with Adaptive Path, they have been, uh, they're kind of the leading, uh, or one of the leading UX firms in the country. They're based in, of course, San Francisco. San Francisco. Next to a coffee shop, I'm like pretty a, sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of hard not to be. <laughs> but um, they had they have uh, they put on UX Week every year and mm-hmm. I've uh, been twice to that That's and several conference. other uh, conferences throughout the year. But they do awesome stuff and their blog is great. They have um, great articles. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of their signposts for the week posts that come across every week. They're not always about UX design, but um, interesting stuff about the, the way the world is going. Uh, you know, great posts like typographers, the original UX designers, you know, looking at things from a little bit different perspective. So a great blog I would point you guys to is adaptivepath.com slash blog, I think is the, right? Yeah, slash blog. Well, you can figure it out. Yeah, they've redone their website. Um, Or slash, no, slash ideas. They've they've changed the uh, direct direction. Yeah. And uh, another interesting piece of trivia, which maybe you're aware of, but one of their principals, Peter Merholtz, mm-hmm. he's the one who coined the term blog. Did he? Yep. <laughs> he's there on the front page. And he's the very first one. And Jesse James Garrett. Yeah, who's written that great the book. Of, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Um, what, what is it? It's about... I know, I know, I can see it. Yeah, I can visualize <laughs> the cover. On my bookshelf. But the name is not coming. Yeah, it's a great book, whatever both, that book was. <laughs> they're both really kind of pioneers in the modern form of what UX is understood to be. So, Plus, it's cool that they, you know, it's a guy named Jesse James who works there. Yeah. Yeah, or Steve Martin, whatever. <laughs> was that supposed to be funny? Never, no. <laughs> well, no. That, that sounds more like a, that, that was good. Like a future plan. <laughs> <laughs> but what I like about these guys, what I've seen so far, is that they're not restricted to doing web design. So they, no, they're, they're this all-encompassing no. web uh-huh. des- uh, web design. They're, I think something's wrong with me today. I <laughs> whatever um, that they go well beyond web design because sometimes I get a bit tired that everybody uh, the elements of user experience. That's it. Elements of user experience. Oh yeah, they they excellent, excellent. Yeah, and they like. John, like they said, it, they call themselves an experience design consultancy, right. not mm-hmm. a user experience design, but just experience design, which I I hear more and more because mm-hmm. it's almost like UX and user experience is almost becoming like mm-hmm. outmoded. <laughs> so but you hear that so often, it doesn't so mean common. anything anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but that's another topic for another day. 
So a uh, book club reminder as we close uh, the this podcast. Uh, so we're going to review the book Resonate by Nancy Duarte, and we've got a link in the show notes where you can purchase that on Amazon. And it's a fantastic book about uh, um, presentation design and from the story perspective. So it's 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 an awesome book. Um, what else could I like say? presentations in? She has several books like on actual creating presentations and slides and that kind of uh-huh. thing. But this, what this is about is if you want to create a presentation uh, that actually changes the audience's behavior as a result of your presentation, you know, how do you do that? Because mm-hmm. that's really challenging, right? Most presentations are just drivel. It's more about right. the process and the flow of it, yeah. not the visuals of it. So, right. So she's kind of she's analyzed uh, what I would call the design pattern. Mm-hmm of the story mm-hmm. flow of presentations that change people's behavior. And she just lays it all out right in mm-hmm. the book. And it's, it's, it is a great read. So anyway, we will be reviewing that in a near term episode. So we encourage you to pick that up, um, post questions about it on the blog, on our blog on Einstein and And, uh, we will, um, include those questions and comments in our discussion of the book here on the podcast. So look for that soon. Big thanks to Josh Mulligan for helping with the show notes. And thanks to the Hive, HiveFC, as in HiveFortCollins.com. That also works, by the way, for the uh, office space here to record the podcast. And visit our website at EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Please rate us on iTunes. That's the best way to help other people find out about the podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Ron underscore Z or on the web at CodeGeek.net. Yeah, and I'm also at clevercubed.com and Twitter is at clevercubed. And the UIobservatory.com and at J-O-C-H-E-N-W-O-L-T-R-S on Twitter. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this what turned out to be our longest podcast without a Oh my goodness. Yeah, we're like, oh, there's no feature. We'll just talk about the news. It'll be shorter. (laughs) (laughs) We need a different plan next time. Yeah, different plan. We need a project manager. We're at an hour and 20 minutes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. It was fun though. Yeah. It was fun. Give us some feedback. Just be glad that I didn't do that other two news items that I had. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at BlackLabWorld.com. Inside.